Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I know that when I was younger, certainly, I would, you know, I'd want to know everything about the other person. I'd want to spend all my time with them. I want to go everywhere with them. And I think that now I feel secure in a relationship. I understand that I want my partner to have his solitude. I also need to protect that and and say, you go off, you know, this is your time for adventure. Because he will say to me, this is your time for adventure. And actually, um, there is something beautiful about building something strong enough that you can leave it and you can allow distance to come into it. You're listening to the Alonement Podcast, hosted by me, Francesca Spector, author of Alonement, How to Be Alone and Absolutely Own It. Each week, I interview an inspiring new guest about the time they spend alone and why it matters to them. Ultimately, at the heart of every episode is one central question. What turns solitude into a positive, fulfilling experience? Because when alone time isn't lonely, it's alonement. Oh, hey, it's season finale time. I am always surprised by how quickly this time comes around, but arguably time flies when you're having fun. And after five seasons and over 40 guests into this podcast, that's still very much true. My guest for the big finale is Natasha Lunn, author and features director at Bread Magazine. Natasha's first book, Conversations on Love, is inspired by her bi-monthly newsletter of the same name. Over the past four years, she's interviewed leading psychotherapists, writers and thought leaders from Alain de Botton, Dolly Alderton, Esther Perel and Philippa Perry on the subject of love in all its forms. It is such a beautiful book to gift to your best friend, your partner, your family members or even as part of a wedding gift for someone. One of the things I hugely admire about Natasha is the curiosity, individuality and sense of personal high standards that she brings to her work. Ahead of this recording, she shared with me how she'd held out for the right moment before agreeing to turn her hugely popular newsletter series into a non-fiction book because she wanted to make sure it wasn't just a book but the book, one that felt true to her individual vision for the project 
And I can truly say that she's managed to achieve that with Conversations on Love. Put simply, the book and the newsletter have transformed how I, and I'm sure many others, who have read it, view love. It elevates love in all its guises, discussing the beauty and the nuance of family love, parental love, romantic love, and the love that you have for your best friends. Natasha also speaks about a subject very close to my heart, the value of solitude in developing close, meaningful relationships. And you bet that's a topic we discuss at length in this episode. Now, time for the season five finale. Natasha, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You're someone whose work I've absolutely admired for so many years. I have subscribed to your newsletter, I think pretty much the whole time it's been out. And I, yeah, since the very early days. And I have been reading your beautiful book and it's everything that I think so many fans of the newsletter were expecting and more. And I'm really interested about in a book about relationships and love, how much the idea of solitude actually comes into it. I felt very, very seen in that. And I think particularly early on in the book, there's a line you write about searching for love in your teenage years and 20s. And you write, there was also an unhealthy story about solitude that had somewhere seeped into my view of love. So I wanted to ask, how did your relationship towards aloneness affect your relationships back then? Well, one of the reasons why I was so keen to um, come on and speak to you is that it wasn't something that I was expecting, but the idea of, or or I guess the difference between solitude and loneliness and being alone was the thread that ran throughout the whole book in a way that I really didn't anticipate in the beginning people might think that in the finding love section, that would be a really big theme, but actually it was just as big of a theme in the sustaining love section and running through to the loss section. Um, But I guess the bit that you were talking about at the beginning, before I revisited the time in my life when it was sort of two decades really of being single on and off and feeling lonely and expecting that I would be on my own forever. um, That period, I thought that what I was afraid of was just not having a relationship. And that was a kind of fear that I was living with, but it really was about being lonely. You know, it wasn't um, just not having a romantic partner in my life. It was really just a fear that my friends were moving on in relationships and they would perhaps create lives that I wasn't a part of. And so I would miss them. I guess that feeling of being in your 20s and pulling away from your parents a little bit as well and trying to forge your life outside being a daughter for the first time. Um, Also, my brother, who I'd been very, very close to, was in a relationship and he was kind of growing up and we were no longer these two little siblings. So um, I started to realise that everything I thought I was looking for a romantic relationship to provide, it wasn't really just this fixation on having a partner. It was more my fear of loneliness in general and of feeling like I was sort of losing a lot of the connections that I had had in my teens and early 20s. Um, And I was sort of channeling all that fear of loneliness 
into a searcher relationship, thinking that that would fix all of my loneliness. Um, whereas I now realize what I could have looked at and what I did begin to look at is, okay, if this is the, this is the stuff that I want, which is maybe company on a Sunday, um, maybe somebody to go on holiday with, where can I look for those things that's not just in a romantic relationship? Because the problem with this fear of um, being alone and seeing that as wholly dependent on finding a relationship to fix that is that then every time I would get into a beginning of a relationship, I would be so afraid of it ending because I would think, oh, if this, this relationship ends, I'll be on my own forever. I'm saying this in a kind of, I know this is not the case, but that was the, the feeling that I really believed to be true at the time. Um, and as Alan de Bottle says, approaching love from a place of fear, from a kind of deep fear of being on your own is not a good way to approach any relationship because it's very easy to kind of get into an imbalance or to allow yourself to be treated badly because you would rather be in a relationship where you're unhappy than be on your own, which is a you know, real error, real failing in a way to live a life. And what was it that helped you conquer that fear? Was it doing your work or was that something in your personal life that ha- helped you to reframe that? I think, and re- reading your work, is a, I think it was a little bit like this for you as well, that like anything, it, for me, it was a bit of practice. And I think going into my certainly in my 20s I'd never really spent much time alone and you know you do live in these really nuclear families at university and school don't you very much like even when you're in a relationship at school it's like a date is going to the cinema with 10 other people from school you know there was never really a space um when I was on my own and so I think very boringly part of it was that I had to be forced into that situation to begin to rethink what my life what a happy life would look like without a relationship and you know what role would work play for me what role would writing play for me um where did I want to make new friends and what I write about in the book is really learning and I use the word solitude I think it's pretty much what you use alonement for which is the idea of being alone and content and, you know, comfortable in your own solitude between and separating that from the idea of loneliness, which we can feel when we're with other people as well. So I guess um, Vivek Murthy, who writes this book called Together, calls it emotionally alone. And when I felt emotionally alone, it wasn't thinking, okay, you just have to be happy. It was thinking, okay, well, how can I change that? If I'm genuinely feeling lonely, where can I meet new friends? How can I find new connections? How can I join new groups and make sure that I'm getting the kind of physical and emotional company I need? But separating that from when I was in solitude, just because there weren't other people around, it didn't necessarily mean I was unhappy. There were actually many times when, um, you know, I'd be on my own and writing or even just... um, out walking and listening to music and I was genuinely really happy um so I had to kind of separate those two things and fight the assumption that just because I wasn't with other people I was miserable um but then just genuinely change the times when I did feel alone and be kind of honest with myself about why that was it's funny I do 
feel and I think so many people reading your book at a similar life stage will feel so seen in everything that you write and you said earlier you know that perhaps we have that similarity in having gone through that stage and having faced that aloneness it's almost the only way to get through it and to I don't know to reframe it via that exposure therapy do you think there's something about the anticipation of aloneness which is more difficult because it's not something that you're actually finding solutions for whereas it sounds like when you actually got to that stage and you were identifying things such as being emotionally alone then that allowed you to almost sort of wrestle the beast and and conquer it I think it's just anything that is unfamiliar to us is is uncomfortable in the beginning and so for me because I had never spent any time wholly alone um it was always going to be uncomfortable and difficult for me but I would say that I guess when we're talking about this I I'm very passionate about about saying that you don't have to be happy alone all the time and actually a big part of for me that journey was saying okay I do want connection and that doesn't mean that I have to be with other people every second of every day but it does mean that actually I I need to recognize when I'm lonely when I'm with other people as well and there were definitely times when I was in a relationship where I felt like I wasn't being seen or perhaps if I was in a friendship group where the dynamics were kind of shifted around an older version of me and it was I didn't feel like I was being seen again that I felt very lonely when I was with other people so yes absolutely being alone helped me to practice it and get better at it and understand where the gaps were in terms of relationships in my life. But I think a massive part of it was also thinking, okay, hang on, why do I feel lonely when I'm with these certain people? Um, And why do I feel that I'm not able to be honest about who I am? Because I really think loneliness is a big part of it is just not being seen and understood. Um, And you can feel that when you are on your own but you can feel that just as much with other people I think actually perhaps even more I mean there's a line I wrote in the book that so many people seem to be Instagramming and it's um it's something like like the loneliest place of all is lying in bed next to somebody with your back to theirs hoping that they'll put their arms around you turn around and put their arms around you and they don't and for me that was the big understanding that you can be very very lonely with other people um And you, you know, that really comes down to how honest you are about with them, about yourself. And a lot of that is kind of on you. And I had the choice to be less lonely in those situations. I just had to take it. Mm. And I think, you know, I think that that idea of it being on you, it's not that we are the victim necessarily of our circumstances. And it's not, you know, it's not the victim of being physically alone, because as you say, it's not about whether you are physically around people or not. And I think that, um, there, you know, there is, I think a commonality in, again, a lot of people I speak to as well. I think that that idea of being lonely, particularly in a romantic relationship, I think perhaps because 
we all fed that narrative that that should be the cure-all solution for everything. That seems to be such a recurring and poignant image, particularly that idea of, yes, lying in bed next to someone. Um, yeah, I, mm. I remember I remember at the back end of my relationship when things were falling apart, the idea of being next to that person that you've been so intensely in love with and pretending to be asleep so as not to have a confrontational conversation or you know not to feel like that you can get that sort of consolation from them anymore is a really really lonely thing um and so you know I think that uh that that focus and almost that I suppose because what what I love about um Vivek Murphy's work as well you referenced him earlier as well he really does split up those different forms of loneliness and he investigates it I think a lot more than I'd ever seen before he'll talk about sort of emotional loneliness but then I suppose sort of what you're speaking about that almost feeling of communal loneliness or or loneliness within a within a community or a group setting um and and, in all these different parts and you know again finding those solutions that idea of it being on you it does come back to I suppose that idea of maybe introspection um and you, you know you say that in your book as well you say that again towards the beginning of the book you describe the idea of learning to love as a process of both looking outwards towards that other person but actually first almost looking inwards and sort of exploring yourself being curious about yourself uh, in order to then bring that to your relationships and you know in what in once in what sense was that sort of almost like emotional solitude I suppose um essential to learning to love well I'd say the biggest part of that for me the looking inwards was to ask why am I more afraid of the loneliness outside of a relationship than the loneliness inside of it why did why did that why did one seem like the thing I would do everything to avoid but then that loneliness in a relationship something that I would tolerate when really it's a very similar feeling, I think that the relationship was just in the stories I read and in kind of narrative arc of a life that we see on screen, that was the kind of structure that I was supposed to be building. And just because of that, it it didn't mean that I should tolerate loneliness inside it. So I think for me, I had to really look inside and be like, why, why am I scared of one feeling and running towards the other when both are hurting me? Um, so that was a big part of it for me. But I suppose I don't believe that you have to um, completely understand and love yourself before you can love other people, whether that's friends, siblings, anybody else, because I feel like that's just another stick to sort of or something, um, another hurdle for us to throw at ourselves. Because, you know, I don't know about you, but I don't love myself every day of the year. And I don't think that that means the people in my life love me any less. It's just a constantly moving um, thing and project that we have to keep working on to understand ourselves. But I do think it's difficult to be in any kind of relationship when you don't understand yourself, when you're not completely honest just about what you want or what you're afraid of or what your insecurities are, what your desires are. I think that part of loving friends, family, anybody is being able to 
take those fears and insecurities and vulnerabilities and show them be honest about be honest to with yourself about them and then show them to another person and so the looking inwards part of it is really me thinking what do I my, what do I want my life to look like what do I fear what do I desire where are my um flaws really and what do I want to work on and what do I want to accept mm. so it was really all those things and understanding that love in a relationship with yourself or in a relationship with anyone really does require a lot of self-possession annoyingly mm-hmm. you know I a lot of my research is like looking at other people and dynamics and so much of it comes down to how you understand yourself how you can kind of catch yourself when you have a knee-jerk reaction to something that's unhelpful how you can sort of work through your own feelings rather than just sort of dumping them onto everybody that you come into contact with in your life. Um, yeah, annoyingly for us that love requires a lot of responsibility first. Um, and that was the looking inwards part to look at where I had been complicit in relation. I mean, one example is that I always used to think I dated a lot of men who treated me really badly. And now looking back, I understand that, well, I, idealized a lot of them and I'd put them on a pedestal which is speaking of loneliness a very lonely place to be if someone's idealizing you because they're only seeing parts of you they're not seeing the whole of who you are so in that instance I had to think what I'm making those people feel lonely and I'm not seeing them and yet I'm expecting them to see the whole of me when I'm actually not even showing them that so things like that just realizing oh I'm a lot more responsible for some of these um, some of these periods of loneliness than I had originally thought. Mm. Yeah, and I, I suppose it's quite it's quite empowering in a way. But a lot of a lot of what I get from I think from your book and from what you're saying about I suppose that idea of not having to reach the end point of self love before you reach the sort of sort of false end point of finding love it is all about actually action constant action a constant process of learning to love yourself or at least learning to I suppose you use the word responsibility it's that it's that constant having uh being the custodian of your self-worth and maintaining it um alongside the relationship I suppose and and you know also the way that you speak in the book about even in in 20 years into a marriage, it still is something that you are constantly working at. I quite, I don't know, I think it's quite nice because it, in, a, in a sense, it makes it harder in a sense that it doesn't give us the sort of easy narrative of, oh, you'll learn to love yourself and then you'll find the person that's right for you. And then that's the happy ending. But actually in the idea of constant trying and constant investing and connecting and you talk a lot about awareness and noticing as well in love in a way it becomes more of an exciting challenge perhaps a harder one but a more exciting challenge to have and something that seems maybe more realistic definitely and I think the problem with the whole self-love to find somebody is again it puts um it separates people who are single if they want to find a relationship and people in a relationship as separate. And this idea that 
people in relationships love themselves and they understand themselves and they've got things sorted. And I just think nothing could be further from the truth. And if anything, I'm so grateful for the decades that I spent alone. Um, And I know that I would not be able to be in the relationship I am if I hadn't had practiced some of those skills and sort of ring fenced parts of myself so that I could kind of protect them in this relationship now. And one of the um, relationship coaches called Susan Quilliam, who I interviewed said that she sees so many couples and the biggest challenge that underlies everything is people lose this unconscious balance between I and we, and that actually in every interaction in your life, you need to sometimes think as we to have empathy for the other person to see that your feelings are not the only feelings in a story or in an argument, but you also need to have a sense enough of I so that you can have your own identity, have your own sense of self, not become so enmeshed with the person that you lose yourself and then begin resenting them for your lack of freedom in the relationship. Um, And so I think the way that this narrative is often talked about is that all the pressure is on single people. You need to work on yourself. You need to be content alone when actually it's just as important when you're in a relationship to keep working on those things. And we should be saying to more people in relationships who, who are sometimes terrible at this, you know, you need to spend more time alone. You need to fight for that space to be alone inside your relationship. If you want to um, sustain it in the long run and, you know, I think when something hits a relationship, um, death, grief, loss of a job, loss of identity, you can't expect the other person to solve all those feelings for you. A lot of it will keep coming back to you and the resources and resilience you've developed to understand yourself and see yourself through a difficult patch. And I wrote in the book, like after I had a miscarriage, in the beginning, I was sort of expecting my husband to make me feel better and expecting him to say the right thing and to sort of carry me through the grief. And just as when I was single in my 20s, I came back to the idea that no one else could carry my sadness for me through that patch. It was me. And I had to spend time on my own and understand how I was feeling about my body and my mind. And um, that is something I know that I'll have to do again and again as, as and when things happen. So it's a very long way of saying, yes, I think we put too much emphasis on working on alonement to use your your brilliant phrase when we're not in a relationship and if we're somebody who does want to um have a romantic relationship I think we need to just keep the emphasis on it and that probably lots of people in couples should read your book and uh, and focus on that too thank you I well as I'm a single woman in my late 20s I'm constantly being told at weddings at the moment that you know oh you know are you seeing anyone and then I'm sort of being given this advice um you know for how to meet someone as if I'm the sort of I'm the beginner I'm the amateur uh, despite having had a good few serious relationships at this point and those people in the couple are the experts in this and you know of course we we know that that's not the case and we are all it's a false division we are all sort of working love out in as your book so beautifully shows in you know in myriad ways it's not just about the one romantic relationship but I love that idea that actually when you know when we're in relationships we can also learn 
from single people again not you know not to draw those false divisions but you know we can all taking relationship status out of this learn from each other and sometimes that is learning perhaps the as you referred to the Susan Quilliam the idea of being a we and being better at being a we um but also I I guess learning to be better at being an I I mean I think that the thing that I've developed over the last two and a half years of not being in a serious relationship is the I part because I never knew how to hold both to be true when in a relationship Uh, I was very much guilty of what uh, I know that there's the therapeutic term which I learned from your book enmeshment that you referred Mm. to earlier I was so guilty of that and that's so that you know that's when people do merge into each other in relationships and almost become one person and rely on each other for everything which it does lead to almost that strange resentment I suppose because you don't know where you end and that person begins so the idea of someone not being able to give you everything might seem very difficult and there's also that you quote the poet uh, Rainer Maria Rilke who writes the beautiful line once the realization is accepted that even between the closest human beings infinite distances continue to exist a wonderful living side by side can grow up if they succeed in loving the distance between them, which makes it possible for each to see the other whole and against a wide sky. So is what you're saying that it's important to keep acknowledging that sense of aloneness in relationships alongside the we? Exactly. And not just with yourself, but I think um, loving someone, there's a, a, poem that's read a lot of wedding readings and it's about love as the being the guardian of somebody else's solitude and I know that when I was younger certainly and again this this more fear of being alone I would almost crave the enmeshment you know I want to know everything about the other person I'd want to spend all my time with them I want to go everywhere with them and I think that now I feel secure in a relationship I understand that I want my partner to have his solitude. I also need to protect that and and say, you go off. You know, this is your time for adventure because he will say to me, this is your time for adventure. And actually um, there is something beautiful about building something strong enough that you can leave it and you can allow distance to come into it. And there's space for both of your periods of alonement um, and then you want to come back together and you have new things to tell each other and you are, you know, it's easier to be sexually attracted to each other. Um, yes, I think that sense of separateness is probably one of the biggest things that has come out of my interviews, not just actually in romantic relationships, but in friendships. Um, I write a lot about, <clears throat> obviously with friendships, you go from that period of spending every weekend together living together sometimes, having really almost sometimes enmeshed relationships too. And I don't know if you've experienced this in your late 20s yet, but certainly in my 30s, friendship has really been that kind of, um, it's really been a time when we had to pull apart. People have moved to different cities. People have had kids. Some people are kind of putting more emphasis on work and they're much busier. Some people are caring for sick parents. Um, 
And I've had to get a lot better at sort of tolerating that distance in the friendships, trusting enough that we love each other and we'll come back together and, and giving ourselves, giving each other permission to sometimes disappear for periods um, and accept that that's sort of the ebb and flow of life and we can't always fight it or control it. And yes, we have to keep making an effort to stay close, but we have to allow each other you know, new experiences and new people in those relationships too. So I'd say that has been um, almost as important a challenge for me in friendships as in romantic relationships Mm. too. I love how much your book puts friendships in that, in that same bracket as romantic relationships, because that's certainly something that I think I've always had wonderful friendships, but I think I took that for granted in a strange way as something that, you know, like oxygen would always be there before I entered my late twenties. And there is that, there is that sense of the challenge of change. For instance, when people, when someone enters a new relationship, they'll want to spend their weekend with that person. And that's a really beautiful romantic space to be in, to have all those exciting adventures. But, you know, as, especially when you're among the sort of minority of single friends, there's that extent to which, and you talk about this in your book as well, that idea of, oh, who do I spend a Sunday with? And yeah. I think, you know, I found it quite soothing. You you write in your book, you said, if you expect your friends to always be at the same life stage as you and that to be the sort of basis of your friendship, then that won't, you won't have any friends by the end of that. You have to allow for that evolution. And, you know, I think that, at first I did fear it. And I think we do all naturally really fear change, but actually it's allowed me in a weird way. um, And we spoke earlier about almost finding solutions for loneliness and sort of, you know, tackling that in a sort of proactive way. Um, I think that it, you know, it's allowed me actually to make more friends or deepen connections with others at this point. And I I don't know. I, I think that there was something really soothing in, your book and what you're saying now and that you can and it's okay to allow for those ebbs and flows because you know we certainly allow them in our relationships the idea that there's a rough patch not even necessarily a rough patch but different phases of a relationship I think we kind of do take that to be true we don't really expect a romantic relationship to be the same the whole way through but our friendship certainly for me I know that you know, there'll be parts of me that a future romantic partner will never know that my friends know. And so I, I'm, I love that you give so much dignity to friendships. I think the reason it can feel, well, certainly for me, more terrifying in a friendship is because I guess in the relationship, you have the kind of societal label. And so if you have a fight or if you have a bad patch, you kind of have to stay together because you've sort of got that label up. Well, you don't have to, but there would need to be a conversation in order to leave it. You would need to say, okay, we're going to end the relationship. You're no longer my girlfriend or or whatever. But in a friendship, because there isn't that label, sometimes it feels like if you have a rough month, then that could be the beginning of the end of a relationship. Um, And there isn't, you know, there is a beautiful freedom to that. um, And you can kind of move in and out of them more easily or give each other more space. But I certainly felt like, oh, they can drift more easily. You have to be 
more consciously putting consistency into those relationships because you don't live in the same house as them. You're not going to see them every morning. You're not going to necessarily have your anniversaries or your um, other days in place unless you put them there. So I think with friendships, certainly I've learned that I had to be much more active in them and sort of forcing consistency into them because they didn't have a label in the same way or there wasn't I guess like a structure for those relationships that is sort of expected of them um but yeah I I guess where I got to with it was making sure that I had a balance between letting the old friendships have distance and space and kind of giving each other permission to change but also continually making new friends who were perhaps at a more of a similar life stage to me and I mean Philippa Perry told me uh, she was just like new friends become old friends in time it's a very simple line but I think about that all the time and I now you know when I left university it felt like this is my friendship group and we're all going to be friends forever and we love each other and we'll be this bit like friends you know we'll live together and then (laughs) we'll all um stay together forever and I have got much better at letting new people into my life all the time and understanding that you'd need different friends for different things and I certainly have friends who are new mothers now who maybe we won't be friends for life but you know I've been crying on them in the park and talking for so long about very boring things that nobody else would be interested in and those relationships have been so rewarding um so yes I feel that asking questions about love and friendship has made me much better at accepting the change in the old relationships and then also being excited about new friends coming in all the time and making sure that I've got kind of um, different connections for different parts of me. Mm. I really love that Um, for two reasons. Firstly, I love what you were saying about the freedom almost of once you allow separateness in a relationship, it does also create a freedom and it's a sort of win-win because you can get to uh you can get to evolve and change and invest in in that personal growth but you can also have the friendship or relationship alongside it and I suppose if you if you're enmeshed and you have to be both the same then you can't do both those things so it almost mm. there's almost a real positivity and I think you know also what you said about having different friends to serve you know, different purposes. And as you go through different life stages, I mean, certainly I've experienced the strangeness. And I think a lot of people maybe do find this in their sort of mid, late twenties, early thirties and beyond that strangeness of suddenly being at very, very different life stages to some friends. I mean, you know, at university we're all in the same boat, you know, at at school, you you know, you're all going This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Through the same exams, all of these things, and then you were young professionals, and then suddenly, you know, one of you's out clubbing outside of a pandemic, and the other one is, you know, nursing a child in the, you know, and it's, it's 3am and you're doing completely different sorts of things. And, you know, I love that you said that, you know, now that you have new mother friends who can serve that part of you as well, because I think that maybe that's another type of loneliness when you don't have that, when you do feel that you're at a life stage and you can't communicate it within a wider community of people. I will say, I mean, I, I want to take time on this podcast to say that I was so terrible at being at a different life stage to my friends, you know, something that I was really bad at and I did not behave with dignity or generosity. I just found it impossible. And for me, possibly one of the greatest, you know, you were asking earlier, like, how did you get better at being alone and, um, for me, there was a long time where I felt like I loved my old friends and I wanted us to stay close and they were all in relationships. And I felt that I had to keep seeing them. And that was how I would be less lonely if I kept forcing ways to see them and and keeping those relationships really close and ended up where I just found myself every Saturday at a couple's dinner party, the only single person and they were all my best friends in the world and I loved them and I wanted to see them but I had to say this is not making me happy you know I'm I I do want to meet someone and I'm not going to meet someone at a different person's house every week with with six eight couples and that I did feel 
lonely in those situations and I didn't feel that um as much as we were so close and they understood me I just needed somebody else who was in the same boat as me to talk to about it Mm. and um that was a big that was a big turning point for me when I did make single friends and we're not all single now and we didn't all um fall into relationships at the same time but there was something very generative and intense and meaningful about living through that period of time together and laughing at the disasters together and um sharing adventures and always going out and just both creating opportunities for the other person and just feeling like you had a bit of a partner in that search was so important for me and that's not to say that like we're saying you can't always um have your friends in different life stages and I still remain close to my old friends but in a way it helped those relationships because I wasn't expecting them to be something that they couldn't Mm -hmm. in that period I wasn't expecting them to come out clubbing with me on a Saturday night because they had a young baby at home and they you know they were never going to be able to do that so I think a big part of it is being able to look honestly at what your friends are able to give you and if they're not able to give you something that you need is just making sure that you meet other friends who perhaps are um and I think that that was that was something so rewarding for me both in the new friendships that I made and in the the space that I was able to give the older friends thank you for being honest about that because I think that it's you know it's a strange it's it's a strange thing to navigate I suppose and I I get that there is that feeling of I don't know I've I've certainly experienced it the feeling that I should be in I should go to every scenario that my close friends, the ones in relationships invite me to, um, you know, so, Mm. you know, the couple's dinner party or, you know, for instance, I felt very guilty um, very shortly after my breakup. Uh, This was back in 2018, but it was in the November. And then a very close friend said to me, you know, thinking of me on New Year's Eve, because my plans with my ex had obviously fallen through, um, you know, do you want to come away with uh, me and sort of six couples? And at the time, I felt a really strange, I felt like I was almost being unreasonable by kind of saying, saying no. And I don't think my, I think my friend was just being incredibly nice to invite me along. I don't think she necessarily expected that that was what I wanted to do, but I almost put a lot of pressure on myself. And I think I have in various scenarios, um, you know, for instance, Hindus and all of these things that actually I should not only attend, but also enjoy them and, and, and find that the best exhilarating scenario and you know the reality of it it is if you're at a life stage and perhaps you're not necessarily 100% content with that life stage then being around people on the other side of that or who at least look like they're very happily in a relationship you know probably the other example of this is when you're trying to conceive and you have to go to a baby shower you know in those you, you don't have to be the sort of most valued player or whatever you call it at those scenarios. In fact, they might be difficult. And I suppose showing that self-compassion and being able to sort of own that self-compassion and almost owning not having to go sometimes is really important. It's quite liberating in a society where I do think we put certain things like being in a relationship on a hierarchy of being better and 
we don't allow ourselves to actually say, you know, we're struggling. It's hard. And I did manage. I mean, I don't think that it's um, advisable, perhaps to the extent that I did this. Um, but I was feeling so vulnerable whilst trying to conceive after my miscarriage. that I did actually shut out a lot of friends who were young parents. And I just I just felt that I didn't have the energy to be around too many babies um and not everyone feels that way and I wish that perhaps I hadn't felt that way but I just was being really honest with what I was capable of at that time and there were some months where it was fine but in the patches where it wasn't like particularly after I had say a late period and um a really difficult month I just did give my freedom myself freedom to not go and I, I but equally you know weddings is another one that there was definitely the idea that of course you're happy for your friend and um lots of people find it fine as a single person at the wedding but I'm also passionate about being honest that I found it awful and that I spent weddings um crying in the loo on my own was just the reality of it for me and I remember so vividly being on a dance floor um and it was quite an upbeat song and we were all dancing. And then it sort of became a slow song and everyone shifted into couples. And I was sort of left there standing oh. on the dance for this wedding on my own. And I can feel it like it was yesterday. And it was such a real sadness to me. And to many people, that's a small thing. You know, it's like, oh, just go and sit by the yeah. bar. But to me, those moments were so painful. And now I think... I would just give myself a bit more compassion for finding them difficult. And maybe if anyone who's listening to this, who is like me thinking, why can't I just be happy at this wedding? You know, what's wrong with me? Why am I finding this so hard? Well, I think it is really hard and we need to be more open about how hard it is to be searching for love. If it's something that really, really is important to you and to not be around many other people who understand how lonely or difficult that can be. Mm. So Yes, I, I'm very happy um, to be honest about my, um, my just, I guess, just like wrestling match with it all is what I try to put into that section of just, yeah, like being at the airport and all of my friends on holiday being collected by their partners and having to lug my suitcase back in the rain, like all those moments, I just found very, very difficult. Um, and I think that more of us, need to kind of have compassion for people who are finding those moments hard Mm. yeah I mean absolutely and you know it's not so you know I'm trying to think of a different scenario it's not like if you didn't get a promotion at work for instance you wouldn't go to a party where everyone else had just inexplicably got a promotion whereas often you know often at weddings again when you get to a certain age you'll be you might have just been dumped and you'll rock up at a wedding where a they're celebrating love and the you know the um timelessness of love and you're also surrounded by couples and then you know a thing can happen as you said a slow song can come on the dance floor and you're surrounded by reminders of something that you're struggling with Um, Mm. which you know it's just it's just quite bizarre when you think about it and you know we were talking about loneliness of course being that feeling of being out of step is almost you know it's it's everywhere um you know I think that there's the cliche love is all around 
um, that can be quite inconvenient when it's romantic love that you're searching for. And it's a big, a big party around that. I wanted to ask as well, we were talking about that idea of uh, single positivity yesterday when we had our pre-interview uh, and you were telling me that uh, you, that you actually have, you, you're not necessarily that enamored with that idea of just being one thing. Now, you know, I know that, you know, I know myself, I've been single for a while now and there are many, many positive constellations of it. Um, You know, again, that I think we were talking about that idea of being able to sort of nurture your sense of I. Um, Definitely, you know, I know that in my life, I'm definitely very grateful of that. I don't think I would have wanted even to go into a long-term relationship without having found that in myself. Um, But, you know, do you think that there's a sense of, unhelpfulness in the idea of having to be relentlessly positive about being single yes it's so difficult to talk about this because the the kind of story and the I guess like the hierarchy of love and the 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 emphasis that we put on romantic relationships is a story that we need to sort of unpick and we do need to find other ways to tell more stories of people you know I'm talking about being single from the point of somebody who wanted to find a relationship Obviously, there are many, many people who are single and don't want to find love and who are really happy and find their connection in community or friendships or many other places. And I do think we need more of those stories. But for me, as somebody who was searching for a romantic relationship while single, I definitely felt like a lot of the narrative around being single at the time was you need to love yourself. You need to go on solo holidays. You need to be content on your own. You need to be able to live alone. You need to be an independent person and woman. Um, And I think it was Sarah Hapola, who I interviewed in the book, she told me that she had a similar thing, but with travel. And she spent, I think, a decade traveling on her own, having adventures on her own. And that was a big part of her story. But she got to a point where she realized, I don't have to do this on, on my own. It's not a choice between being in a relationship or being on your own. You can go with friends. You can find a writing community and and go away for a writing retreat with them. You can find different ways to connect with other people that are not dependent on a relationship. So I think, yes, for me, the stories that I'm receiving are you can find connection in a relationship or you have to be really independent and strong and, and create a healthy life on your own. And I think where I wish I had found more um stories and help is just finding different ways to feel connected that were about other people um and and not feeling the need to actually always be really happy on my own like philippa perry and alan de botta said to me we're pack animals we need other people we need um physical company a lot of the time and I think it's really okay for us to admit that and to want that rather than pretending that we are completely blissfully happy, never being in contact with another person. Mm. And yeah, it was definitely a sort of fashionable solar holidays. I just particularly remember being um, something that I felt like I should be enjoying. And when I went on my own, I enjoyed it for about two, three days. And then I did feel quite lonely if it wasn't somewhere I could meet new people or, um, find a sense of community Mm, yeah and thank you for sharing that I think that there's this bizarre sense of 
everything has to be black and white, right? And, you know, alonement for me, uh, you know, and part of the reason why I sort of wanted to create this new sense of language around what solitude could be is because it is about moderation. It's not about that sort of lofty, mm. I think, you know, solitude for me was always Henry Theroux off in the woods or, you know, this very almost sort of masculine, all or nothing sense of what alone time had to be. And I think that, you know, the thing that I found most helpful when I was learning about sort of how to be alone was that uh, the uh, psychoanalyst and pediatrician Donald Winnicott, who I know is a big inspiration for Alan, he wrote this amazing piece of research on, you know, how to be alone. And he found that actually in children, the means by which they learn to be comfortably alone, and, you know, this is in the sort of, you know, baby infancy years is by being knowing that they can be comfortable in the presence of a caregiver without necessarily Mm. interacting with them and you know I I've been through uh lockdown living alone and for part of that and I'll be completely honest about this on this podcast around being alone for part of that I was very lonely and I think it was, you know, it was when I was writing the beginnings of my book and there was a sense by which I had to navigate that and not feel like a total fraud. And, mm. you know, I, and I realized, you know, I, I wrote this book, I came into this journey as an extrovert. I've never said that I'm not an extrovert. And, you know, I, I, it came back to that notion of moderation. I realized that, look, this isn't normal I suppose that self-compassion as well it isn't normal to go four months without seeing anyone or hugging anyone that that isn't normal and I suppose through finding that sense that you can be more than one thing or you can want connection you can want groundedness and that can be the framework by which your sort of sense of positive solitude can rest that was really liberating and even you mentioned solo holidays, even the idea of feeling like a fraud because or a failure because you can't enjoy this big solo travel thing that people mention. I found that actually when I was doing solo trips, uh, I really liked to, I, I used to use um, Airbnb, um, do really good, uh, what's, I think it's called Airbnb experiences. They do really good walking tours. So I found, right. you know, I'd book in a walking tour every, every day or every other day. So I knew that I'd have that social interaction and that, and being able to yeah. sort of filter that in was really helpful rather than say, you know, solo travel, you know, oh, it's not, you know, it's, it's invalidated, I suppose, if it's not solo all the time if you're not honestly living like a monk in the you know in the heart of Vienna or whatever and I think every time that somebody like every time that you say you found lockdown lonely or every time I say being a new mother was really lonely and we're honest about that then it just hopefully will make anyone listening to this feel less alone too and I think the problem comes when we pretend you know I was thinking about this with motherhood that back in how many years ago, you would be living with parents and grandparents and you have so many people around to pass the baby to, to share the load of that parenting. And that the way our society is structured now, um, we live like in much more individual ways. You're, you're alone with that baby for a lot more time than you ever would be. And so, yes, for me, like same as your walking tour, I have to say, right, 
I need to make sure every day I've got a walk with some other months or something else because if I leave it a few days then I can just feel myself getting so lonely um and yeah I guess it comes back to this um the thread of loneliness just I think will keep running through all of our lives all the time and we have to just keep finding ways to be honest about moments when we do feel like that and then actively change it Mm. um and I'm wary of saying anything sort of sweeping generalizations. This is a very small sample, but I will say that for me and the other people I know who've spent more time on their own before finding a romantic relationship are much happier in a romantic relationship now. And maybe that's just a coincidence because it's the people I know. But certainly for me personally, I that time practicing finding different ways to feel connected when I felt lonely is something that I now use and lean back on all the time. And I'm just much better at it. Like I probably would have just let that loneliness creep in as a new mum if I wasn't really familiar with the feeling and having to actively change it. Because I think for people who've never, who've always been in a relationship or always had people around, they haven't really developed the skills to kind of think okay that's loneliness what do I now need to do to change it book a walking tour so I think for me it's been like one of the skills that I'm just really grateful that I've sort of practiced and developed and got better at Mm. yeah it's it's funny in in my book I talk about solitude skills but these are almost something new and different these are these are loneliness skills and it's it's Mm. taking that sort of expert approach to loneliness and you know I think you know I I'm tempted to agree I think that um I I only started speaking about loneliness I think about a year ago and you know alonement has sort of developed and evolved and it became suddenly more interesting I suppose because of lockdown and Mm. I guess I never realized a sort of what you're saying you know not everyone has experienced loneliness by their late twenties. Not, not everyone has experienced it by their, you know, thirties, forties, fifties, sixties and beyond. Some people might go their whole lives without experiencing loneliness. I mean, they'd have to perhaps be in a village of about 50 people that all hang out all the time, but you know, maybe they'd never, (laughs) maybe they'd never experience it. And that's, Maybe that's great in a way, but the reality of it is, as you say, it is something that will occur in our lives and it might occur in a period of our lives and then go go away. Or it might, you know, it might hit us every two years and being able to take that proactive approach is very, very helpful. You know, for instance, as a new mother encountering that new challenge, not sort of just falling into it, falling, you know, and, and, you know, sort of sliding more into loneliness, but actually being able to say, okay, this is loneliness. This isn't the end of the world. This isn't shameful. I've heard someone talking about it on a podcast. So now I can, now I can conquer it. You know, now I can approach it in a, in a whole, in a better way, which actually might lead to better connection. And I use that example of being a new mum because I definitely felt when I was uh, single that I was alone and that everyone else in a relationship didn't feel lonely um and I perhaps wasn't very good at empathizing with people who had on the surface things that I wanted and didn't really see the whole of their 
problems or loneliness, like, for instance, a friend who was unhappy in her marriage and feeling very lonely or somebody who was um, having postnatal depression or, you know, just these many different stories of loneliness. And I just wasn't very good at seeing them because I just felt, oh, well, they've got they've got a relationship with kids, which is what I don't have. Um, And yeah, I I think that I just associated loneliness with being single Mm. and failed to see all the many different shades that it can take and how it will be something that is is sort of crops up for all of us um, at some stage or another, albeit at different scales. And, you know, talking about this and hearing about lockdown, I'm so aware that I've had such a sort of lucky experience in lockdown but so many people you know we're talking on loneliness on quite a small scale some people have had like complete isolation and um just no contact whatsoever so yeah I guess this is a perfect time for you to be doing this work (laughs) yeah well you know I suppose I I think that that lack of empathy um, that we all get it, it's almost I think it's aggravated by forces outside of our control which are that there is that sense of hierarchy there is that sense of oh well you've won so because mm. you're married um, you know you've won because you've had your child already it's like it's that strange thing that pits us up against each other and it creates loneliness in friendships it creates it both ways I remember mm. a situation in lockdown where it was I'm trying to think exactly it was in during lockdown three and it was that very strange phase where we could meet I suppose outdoors but we couldn't really do much else and I hadn't yeah it but it it just entered that phase so I hadn't seen two of my closest friends for a while um but I had been dating someone who um I went through a really slightly awful fortnight where he sort of cancelled on me repeatedly and I think it it was particularly lonely at that stage because normally the you know the really nice thing about being single is you don't really because you you are sort of it is perhaps easier to nurture all those different connections a bit more you're you don't really put your eggs in one basket when it comes to your your weekends Mm. you get used to planning different things but because it was that strange very unnatural state of lockdown where you were only going to see maybe one or two people or sort of form bubbles that really strange thing where you don't have your usual infrastructure um but anyway I remember that happening um and I remember I think he he'd cancelled perhaps the second or third time and it just it felt like a sort of unbearable moment that was probably one of the lowest moments of lockdown just because it felt so vulnerability inducing but I remember calling up a couple of my friends and saying look I know it's really cold and it's still sort of March time um but, you know, would anyone be okay for, you know, a glass of wine outside? I feel like I really need to see someone right now. Um, and they both rocked up within 10 minutes, which was just this, mm. you know, talk about feeling held and feeling that support. And that was incredible. But the conversation we had, and, you know, especially after having not being able to see each other for a good few months, it was actually incredibly empathetic. And I I learned things about them that I hadn't suspected. One of them said, look, it's been wonderful having my partner throughout lockdown, but I I don't know where my friends have gone. Um, You know, and I don't Mm. feel like I have anyone to sort of message in the evenings sometimes when, you know, when we're, you know, my partner and I are on the sofa together and that feels lonely. And almost it got me out of my own loneliness, my own situation, which at the time seemed so awfully 
unfair and sort of victim victim inducing sort of victimizing it being because it was it was so the products of lockdown being able to talk and have that sense that actually we were all experiencing simultaneously different types of loneliness was really it was so important it was so connecting mm. and I think that the more difficult thing the the shame of feeling that you were being resentful and not being a good friend because you were assuming that okay people were okay because they were married and you were you're actually not empathizing that was more difficult Mm. but I I think the really difficult thing is to do what you did and say anyone can anyone be free and that's what I found hard of that kind of just asking for what you need is is the really difficult thing I think yeah it is um there's a loneliness in not being able to ask and certainly that's something that when it's the l words you know like loneliness is I, I i think that maybe we've always felt able to talk about i don't know i suppose breakups you know there's the cliche there's the ceremony there's the ben and jerry's there's all of that we have rituals around that but how do we talk about loneliness where's the where's the sort of you know the sassy best friend rocking up because you're lonely and mm. i think almost being able to talk about it and normalize it is quite important. Yeah, and it does feel shameful some well it shouldn't, but it definitely did feel shameful for me at some points to say to somebody, I feel lonely because you assume that nobody else is feeling the same. But yeah, I guess like when exactly as you and your friends did there, when you can each share how you're feeling lonely, then you realize that it's not this unique problem that's individual to you it's just something that we'll all experience at points and we should just get much more um open about and seeing as a normal part of life just as joy is just as suffering is um and just yeah it it seems it would be naive I think to assume that you can just escape it entirely and perhaps there's a part of it that is also what helps us value time with other people um as well and I certainly feel like my patches of loneliness now have really made me more grateful for connection and better at perhaps not overlooking it some of the time I still overlook it but mm. <laughs> you know just just to uh, not take it so wholly for granted yeah yeah that's I think that's beautiful I think that you know that it's it, it's that loneliness isn't a failure loneliness if 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 probably addressed and 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 you find those solutions and you use it for greater connection it can actually be a sort of triumphant thing a thing that actually once you overcome it can lead to those better connections um it's just acknowledging it and I think that phrase that you used you know how are you feeling lonely I think that's wonderful you know Mm -hmm. because I think that sometimes we can have conversations about loneliness it's like oh no they're feeling lonely um you know uh, that sounds like something that I'm not equipped to deal with, you know, sort of back away quickly. And I think that actually being able to take an interest in someone's loneliness, and perhaps this only comes after you've experienced loneliness yourself and say not, you know, oh, I'm sorry, you're feeling that way, but oh, interesting. How are you feeling lonely? What kind of lonely? What what solutions can we find? It's mm. it's quite it's quite nice. It's quite brave to explore loneliness in that way. Yes, and I... I think that I just had the sense that it meant that I was some sort of moldy product on a supermarket shelf that no one had taken and that had passed its expiry date and was sort of left behind. Um, 
And I wish that I had seen it how you just described it mm. as something very normal and expected. I want to move on to the final segment of this podcast where we speak about alonement and the positivity behind that alone time. So, you know, the flip side of this loneliness that we're discussing. And I, I found it really interesting in your book, you you write about how before meeting your husband, you sometimes struggled to value the alone time that came with being single. And, you know, even though that a lot of your friends you knew that who were in relationships and spent their weekends with their in-laws or what you know had kids and spent their weekends at toddlers parties they even though you knew that they sort of envied it to an extent and would have wanted it themselves you found it hard at times to value and you know what I really like is the line where you say what I found tiring about looking for a romantic relationship was that there was no way of looking knowing for certain if there would ever be an end point I would tell friends I don't mind if I don't meet anyone for another 10 years. I just want to know that it will happen one day. Do you think that without that sense of knowing, without that certainty, is it possible to value the alone time inherent in a situation? You know, even if that situation itself, like being single or, you know, longing to have a baby is something that you want to escape do you think that you're still able to value the sense of solitude within it without that glorious retrospect yeah the solitude in uncertainty in both those situations I think is what you're talking about but um yeah I guess the the mission of the whole book is it's kind of similar with the solitude with other people that we we overlook people all the time when we're close to them and then when we lose them we know so clearly that that's the most important thing in a life or at the end of our life, we'll know so clearly that those people matter. And yet in the daily drudgery of life, we nag them about things they haven't done and we snap at each other and we overlook each other. And in the same way with solitude, when we have it, when I had it, I wrestled with it and and hated it. And then as soon as you are with other people all the time, you crave it. And I'm sure that, you know, speaking to so many people um, that I interviewed who had very lives where they had a lot of demands on them from other people, whether it be parents or friends or children or siblings or whatever. If you could say to them they could have a, a weekend of time alone, you know, it would be utter bliss for them. So my book was a way of saying, like, just as much as how can we value people when we have them more than when we lose them? It's also saying, how can we value time alone when we have it not only when we are with other people and we don't have it as much um and for me it was learning to like as we said before learning to differentiate between loneliness and solitude solitude being a time when I was on my own and content and intensely aware of how I was feeling and what I was interested in in the world and what I was excited about and what was a purpose that could kind of become something meaningful to me. Um, It might have been writing, but it could easily have been walking in nature and feeling very peaceful. Um, It could be listening to a piece of music and feeling so, so much like I was connecting to it in a way that I wouldn't feel if I was with another person. And, you know, it's very difficult to talk about that feeling without being cheesy, but it, it is that feeling of being very intensely alive and 
understanding your place in the world and what matters to you is probably the best way that I'll put it for me. Um, And so, yes, in those periods of uncertainty, it was about giving myself compassion for feeling alone and frustrated by not knowing what was going to happen, but equally seeing that there was at the same time, you know, these things don't replace each other or they're not consolations, but at the same time, there was a romance in that solitude and there was meaning to be found in it. And it was a time where I could really, really get clear about my desires and what I really desired separate from anybody else. And it is probably, you know, that is a very meaningful relationship in in life as well, just as doesn't mean it's more meaningful than any others. Like we were talking about the single positivity, but it is equally as meaningful. And it's something that I make an effort to carve out time for even now. And as much as I can, just some space where, you know, it's a bit like when I was writing conversations on love after becoming a new mother and it felt like, you know, shut in my little room. It was me saying, oh, there you are to myself. You know, that that kind of bit of solitude is just a way of um, being in a relationship with myself as well as with other people. And there is something very meaningful to me about that and will always be meaningful to me, no matter how many other people I'm lucky enough to have in my life. I think that's wonderful. So that's what you would say, I suppose is the value of alone month for you. It's nurturing that relationship with yourself, even at a stage where you are married and you have a daughter and you're at a very different life stage to where you were before when you had a lot of solitude. Yes. And I think understanding that not work, but purpose, whatever that purpose is to you is, um, a form of love you know it might be creating something that others connect to it might just be doing something for creativity's sake and um Lem Cisse when we spoke about this as a form of love told me is that creativity is not just something for artists you know it could be in the way you decorate your home it could be in the way you cook a meal for yourself that's particularly um something new and creative that you're trying just I think there are many many different ways that we can create something or find purpose that are not necessarily anything to do with another person um and there is such joy to be found in those things and they're not a consolation prize for being alone there's just it's just another way to have a really rich and interesting life and I feel like if you cut yourself off from all those things completely just because you are in relationships or you've got lots of friends then you're just missing out on something really amazing in life um and I'm so grateful for those moments and I feel like I have to fight harder for them now but I definitely know how important they are so I will keep fighting for them thank you so much Natasha I've really really loved having this conversation and I think it's I I think there's so much that this book has taught me about alonement and about loving and as you say in the end of this book you know, it's not just about learning to love. Actually, that process taught you to learn to live. And I think that's come across so powerfully. Oh, thank you. Hey, guys, I really hope you're enjoying the show. While this particular episode may have come to an end, the conversation is just beginning. 
head over to alonement.com to hear more about Alonement and sign up to our free monthly newsletter. You can also follow us on Instagram at alonementofficial. Oh, and remember that sharing is caring. So if you got something from this episode, why not share with a friend who you think might benefit from listening? Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.